So we've really got some incredible things that we are working on in many different businesses. I thought that the first few seconds of the podcast would be great to give tips that we've learned and are learning along the way as we're deploying technology solutions, as we're investing in multifamily opportunities and other real estate opportunities, as we're going through and raising money for software solutions and real estate and other investment opportunities, as we're setting up fund of funds. These first few seconds, on the show moving forward are going to be dedicated to those little tips and tricks that we have learned along the way uh, about how to do those different things in your business. And if you are a business owner who is interested in growing their net worth through investing in real assets, go ahead and head over to investinsquarefeet.com and sign up for our newsletter because we are going to be sharing exactly how to do that. My wife actually started an eyewear company and she then needed financing. So I helped her like I did in San Francisco, helped her raise money. We raised money and I said I would stay on for like six months and I ended up staying on for about six years. We built up some franchises. We opened up our own retail stores and then we sold that in um, 2019. We, we both were just burned out. And I knew about search funds. I had gone to a search fund conference in like 2016 and I didn't like search funds. I thought it was like a very interesting way to buy a company, but I thought the way that searchers went about it was very um, conservative, like getting money to go like talk to people to buy. I was like, just go out and talk to people and buy their business. Like, why do you need someone to pay you to do this? So I, I basically saw this as like a mini private equity and like the first entry point. And I was looking and looking, I probably read 2000, 3000 Sims uh, during a two year period. And when Lantaria, uh, when we finally got to the point of like negotiating a deal with Lantaria, the, the deal was so far outside the norm and such a screaming deal for me that I knew this was an outlier and I knew we had to, to move quickly. And so that's how I got into that. And then once we got into it, so Lantaria is an HR. I knew nothing about HR. I've never worked in a large company. Um, and our focus is on like enterprise. So I basically just sat down with our customers ask them questions. And then I started doing a podcast with HR people and would ask them questions, just kind of learned along the way about HR. And now I really, uh, I find it super interesting and like outside of my own competency, but I, I, I keep trying to learn every day and I've seen like how big this market and the opportunity is. Yeah, that's interesting. So just back up real quick. You mentioned Sims and you mentioned the search fund. Explain a little bit about what, what both of those are for the, the listeners. A Sim just means confidential information memorandum. So normally a broker will put together a document, uh, like almost like an investment banking document, where you'll learn everything about the business, everything about the market, the opportunity. Uh, sometimes they'll put the price, sometimes they won't put the price. Um, and you, you know, they'll be between 10 and a hundred pages, uh, depending on sort of the complexity of the deal. And you'll be able to sort of have enough information to hopefully make an offer on the business. That's the hope of the brokers without having to do too much more work. That's a SIM search funds are essentially mini private equity firms where, uh, two people, typically MBA graduates, um, go out to acquire one business and they are given, you know, 200 to $500,000 to pay themselves basically, or pay whoever they need to, to go out and basically be a mini PE firm and go search for businesses. 
then the investors get sort of first bid on whatever business they decide to buy. And with that first bid, they also just get more favorable uh, terms. So, you know, the searcher will typically get between 20 to 40% of, of a company that they buy. Investors put in the capital to buy it. They'll bring in some debt usually. Uh, and they're typically businesses that are doing, you know, eight to 15 million in revenue to one to 4 million in EBITDA. That's sort of the sweet spot. And they're more like traditional businesses. It's not like buying startups or things like that. It sounds like you always went down this path where you were always looking at uh, established businesses rather than starting your own. Was there ever an inclination to go down your own path? You had an idea, I'm going to start something, or was it always like, I'm going to search and try to find something that resonates or is a good opportunity for me that's already existing? I mean, I had started a business. So for me, the zero to one journey uh, at that time was just so daunting. I, I knew what I went through from like 2012 to 2014 to like get our business to the point where like you weren't like smashing your head against the wall for how frustrating everything was. And I didn't want to go through it again. But as I was kind of looking at Sims and looking at deals, the prices were so high in 2020, 2021 that there were times where I started almost shifting back to, I, I almost started another fractional CFO business or some sort of just service-based business that could be easier to spin up. I did think about it because, just because the market was crazy. I mean, I was focused on software. I live in Barcelona. I'm not going to buy a business here. I don't like the market. I don't think it's good enough. Uh, I knew I wanted to work remotely, spend time with my family. You know, I, I like that lifestyle. So I knew software or e-commerce was the only thing, but software businesses are super expensive. So you had to be patient. I mean, a lot of people are very like, I got to get going. I got to get going. And I'm going to just buy, I got this business. I'm going to buy it. Or they fall in love with the deal. You just got to be patient and kind of wait for it. People always say like your fat pitch that comes in and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's it. I got it. Yeah. You made me think of what your specific goals are. You said you wanted to be able to spend time with your family and all of that. And it really kind of pointed to software. Uh, did you have any other acquisition goals or criteria or anything like that that you outlined or maybe even advice for someone who's looking to go down these paths to be able to understand, I should be thinking about this, this, and this, to be able to outline this is the right industry, this is the right vertical or product. Any thoughts there? Absolutely. I think one thing I knew, I needed to find a business that I could put debt on. I, I knew I didn't have enough personal capital to acquire a software company that was at a certain size. There's acquire.com is a, a good website that has a lot of small businesses that are if I, small software companies. They're doing five to 15K a month in revenue. For me, that was too small. I wanted to you know, already start in a different league. So like Lantera was doing about 1.5 million in revenue uh, annual. So that I knew I wanted to be above the 1 million threshold in revenue. Uh, and I knew I needed to put debt on it. And I knew I needed to find a deal that I could easily convince uh, investors because I'm in Barcelona, I'm not in San Francisco, I'm not in the US. So it's going to have to be something they're like, I don't know who this guy is, but even if he's terrible at this, he can't screw it up that bad. So those were sort of like the main criteria of what I was looking at. Um, I think the thing that people should think about is what are their core competencies? What are they good at? What are they not afraid of? Like for me personally, I love the thing about buying businesses I liked was just the curiosity of it. You get to look into how an industry works or how something, you know, you're looking at dumpsters, you're looking at real estate management, you're looking at e-commerce of like Lego resellers. You learn all this stuff and you're like, wow, the economy is huge. But 
you have to have curiosity to go with that. Uh, and I think for all entrepreneurs, like for me, the one thing an entrepreneur needs is like just curiosity and resilience are the two things. But you have to be interested in what you're doing every day and find the interest in whatever. Like for me, like the HR thing is, you know, in HR for the, from the outside would be boring, but I sit down with these HR people and I think it's super interesting what they do because they're, they explain their story. They explain all the things you listen to and you're like, wow, this is really cool how you got into HR. And then my man, like our marketing manager says to me, that was really boring listening to you ask this woman 50 <laughs> questions about her life. And I'm like, yeah, but I thought it was interesting. I talked to a woman the other day. It's like a 911, was a 911 operator and then became the manager of HR, VP of HR for this big corporation. It was like, what a weird journey to get there. Yeah. Um, so for me, those are like, you just have to be curious and interested in what you're doing. And if you are, you can do pretty much anything in entrepreneurship. I mean, you can't, if you can't be a brain surgeon just because you're curious, but you can be an entrepreneur by being curious. Like there, mm -hmm. there's no boundaries of things you can do as an entrepreneur if you are interested in things. You kind of explained a little bit, you, you obviously went and interviewed a lot of people in that space to learn from them. Uh, what other type of market research did you do? Like when you were going through and identifying all of these potential opportunities, you, you said that this one stuck out. Was HR like something in your mind that you said, I want to be in that space before you found it? Or was it really the opportunity that drove you you know, into that space? And I'm curious as, as far as what type of research did you do to qualify that industry, that type of market research to be able to say, yeah, this is a good opportunity and the, the industry as a whole is a good opportunity as well. It wasn't an industry I was like focused on or looking for. I was just being opportunistic if there was a good deal that came along. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I didn't want to get into like marketing tech. Uh, there, there were certain things that I didn't want to do because they're just too crowded. HR. So when I saw HR uh, and started digging in a little bit deeper, so there were two parts. One was Microsoft. So our product is focused on like Microsoft. And I talked to a few people in the Microsoft ecosystem and they were telling me it was doubling every year, the amount of people using Office 365 since the pandemic. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And they also said that Microsoft was very good at helping partners and helping products that were on their systems to, to grow. So those were two key pieces on the Microsoft side that, that you know, some people we were talking to like Microsoft, like, why would you want to be in Microsoft? And I was like, this is what people are saying about it. Mm -hmm. And it's growing like crazy. On the HR side, a ton of money poured into HR from 2019 to 2021, a lot of investment and a lot of it was because of the pandemic and the shift in work. So I knew that remote work, uh, this change in work style, like all these changes were going on and there's going to be a big shift in this market over the next 10 years. So I knew that with all that change, there could be some opportunities in there. Um, the question is sort of how you mine them and, and, there's good and bad to that. There's money pouring in, great. But at the same time, all of a sudden you have competitors that were nothing six years ago and now they have a billion dollars and you have a knife and you're going against their like bazooka that they're firing out there. So it has its good and bads, but I knew that this market was uh, interesting and just sort of boring. It wasn't marketing tech. It wasn't fintech. It was off to the side a little bit, but at the same time, big, huge growth rates of uh, you know eight to 10% compounded annual growth over the next you know, 10 to 15 years. You mentioned how this opportunity just stood out uh, uh, above everyone else. And I'm assuming that this was all based on 
the marketing material and the business prospectus that they had, had put together. Um, did you have any type of a structured approach as to looking through this list of different opportunities and quickly being able to say, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, that one has potential, dig into it more. Was there any type of an approach that you that you used to be able to you know, qualify those opportunities, would you say? Yeah, you would be able to see. I mean, there were sometimes that you would get through the first sort of piece of to look at the sim, you'd be like, this is an interesting market, really interesting business, terrible price or terrible expectations for price. Because there, there are sometimes people that are out there, especially in software, it's like, pay me 10x revenue, or I'm just going to keep operating my business. Um, and those are the types of deals that I don't know how they pencil out a lot of times. I think if you do have like a solid playbook and you come from a specific industry, I think you could take it over and, and grow it, but I think it's too risky. Um, I knew that price was going to be a big driver for me, uh, making sure that it was something that was profitable. Um, so Lantaria, funny enough, didn't have any SIM. The guy sent... Uh, they had basically they're just their pitch deck that they sent to sales to, to like potential clients along with like a few pages of, of financials. The thing that they had that interests me was they had really good logos. So for me, it, it was like starting on second base. Like you already have good logos. You already have social proof. You already have case studies. And that for me, you know, the hardest part about SaaS is getting people to think that you're actually a legitimate business and that they'll work with you. And these guys had already overcome that. And these guys were Ukrainian. Uh, and they are, the, the, their sales have been pretty flat for several years, which for me, you know, in SaaS, that's almost like a turnaround. It's, it's a situation where if you're not growing, you're kind of dying out. Mm -hmm. And these guys had focused more on optimizing for profit than optimizing for growth. Um, and that made it great because the bank saw it as this great profitable business that had been earning money for a long time. But at this, for us, it was like, well, we're just going to reinvest every, like we're going to plow everything back into the business for growth. And so that it had a lot of things to it that we could, you know, kind of play with and get the bank behind us, get investors behind us, move quickly on the deal. Uh, and because these guys were in Ukraine, they had the issue with the war. We had to move relatively quickly. Like we had really only two months to, to close the deal. And I would say our biggest mistake or, or my biggest mistake was we moved super quickly to get the money we needed. Uh, we got the equity financing and then we went for the SBA loan and we closed that quickly. And we said, okay, now we're at the finish line. I didn't use that moment in time to then get more equity financing that would have helped us actually grow. I thought, let's learn this business. Let's put together a better plan. Let's understand it and we'll get a better valuation here in six to nine months. And obviously, you know, from June, 2022 to January, 2023, the market for investment just collapsed. And we got into a situation where basically nobody was in the market to finance a business like ours. Like this has been flat for a while. So we had to basically bootstrap now. So we went out to customers and started trying to get them to do projects, started trying to get them to upsell them into other modules. And we've been able to grow about th almost 40% uh, the last 12 months, but like really just pulling every lever we can with current uh, customers where it would have been much easier if we had just raised half a million more and said, let's plow this into marketing and sales and, and growth. Yeah. Do you, do you have any rules of thumb, if you will, when you're starting out, what should be your percentage allocation toward the marketing and sales to be able to grow? Is, is there, do you have any, any insight into what that number should be based on where you are, you know, in your EBITDA or? I think it depends on the type of business. I mean, like ours, 
has sort of two components that were sort of rebuild. Like our product was legacy. If you're buying a company that the SaaS is relatively new, it's three or four years old. I would say in that case, you probably should be spending about 50-50 on product and at versus sales and marketing. In our case, we do have to put a lot more, a lot into product. So we're at like, I would say 60-40 or even 70-30 product versus sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think in a normal case, you could probably be at 50-50, um, you know, taking whatever revenue is coming in or whatever investment you have. Sales and marketing in, in software is, is uh, a beast. I mean, it's, it's something that people look at gross margins of software and they're like, wow, look, at this is incredible. Yeah. But the sales and marketing that goes into it is, is not to be sneezed at. It's, it's a lot of money that gets pumped into that. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that you were looking for a company that you could put debt on. And I'm just curious, your thoughts from a, an investment standpoint, getting debt versus having somebody buy in and capture equity. What are your thoughts there going one route versus the other, especially uh, early on? Yeah, I think now if, if I had a better track record as, as an investor and as, as in operations with investors, so I'd operated just like bootstrapped my own company. Uh, if I had more track record, I would probably try and get as much equity investment as possible. Now I know you lose out on, you know, the potential upside in the future. I think the issue is the debt and the equity, they put the people at odds. They put the shareholders versus the guy that takes on the debt in this case, me, where, you know, my main concern is servicing this debt and growing the company where if you're all, if it's all equity, the one concern is just let's grow the company. Let's have the biggest exit possible. Mm-hmm. So right now we have these sort of conflicting viewpoints and you have to service the debt. Otherwise you have no right. company. And I, I think in the future, I probably would look at, I'm going to have less upside, but the company probably has more upside if you just take on equity. And I think now with where debt, you know, where debt is at uh, and interest rates, I think it is getting to sort of in this territory where it, it's hard to justify 10, 12, 15%, like almost mes debt um, levels for, you know, these returns on investment into marketing or sales or whatever. It's, it's a little bit harder to justify. Yeah. And, and I, I would assume that when you're looking at taking on somebody, bringing them in as equity, just to keep everyone's interests aligned, it would be best if that person also brings a skill set that can also help you know, propel the the company as well. Does that often happen when you're looking for investors where they'll also be willing or capable of bringing some other type of skill set to the table also? So I, I also, I sit on a committee for, for a family office for investment. Um, the thing that every entrepreneur and every family officer, every VC brings to the table is they say, we're smart money or we're looking for smart money or we are smart money. I have... I've never seen a situation where the smart money actually did that much for the company. I there there's, and the one reason why is people just don't have time. Like to get that smart money, you might get one to four hours per quarter in, in a boardroom and maybe a few other calls with the person that's the smart money on the other side of the table. What is that worth? Like is, you know, in the end, you just need that cash to hire the people that are going to be 24 hours with you applying their their trade to your business and getting those like few hours sprinkled in is great it's super helpful i think it's better than nothing like it's better than getting just a vc analyst that comes and says like hey the numbers don't look good what's going on 
it, it does help and it, it makes the conversations easier. But I do think the smart money thing is it's a constant trope that I've never seen really play out 100% well. Yeah, interesting. You made a, a tweet that I thought was really insightful. And I just wanted to dive into this. You had talked about how everyone is looking for this this diamond in the rough, right? They're looking yeah. for the opportunity that is so great and has a great price, great business model, everything's factored in and, and you're looking at it for a bargain basement price, right? And and you said those don't exist. The, you You have to understand that if this thing was humming along so well, that's all going to be factored into the price and you're going to pay a higher price for those types of opportunities. So everybody's out there looking, searching for this diamond in the rough opportunity. And you said, understand where you're buying in. And if you're buying in low, you need to be able to understand what you're going to bring to that opportunity to be able to make it yeah. to the next level, right? So talk a little bit about like the the things that you went through and realized this is a great opportunity. You had mentioned there was some constraints with the seller just because of their the geographic location. Um, talk a little bit about what you saw in this opportunity and realize like we can do this or I can bring these strengths. Talk about some of those things that you realize we can add this to this to be able to make yeah. this an even better uh, opportunity. Even from beyond like our personal thing, I, I see it as sort of binary of you're either buying a really good business that's growing, which a lot of PE firms, you know, that's their job. They by growing strong businesses, they pay that premium, but they have a playbook to take that company from 10 million ARR to 50 million ARR. They know who to hire. They know what to do. They've got the playbook. The playbook changes because the market changes, but they're smart enough to sort of ramp up and, and be able to do that. And they have the capital to dump into these companies, take it from 10 to 50 or from 50 to 250, IPO it, do that. There, that's a model. That's something that you can do. That's a one game. The other game is turnarounds or you know getting down and dirty into an area where you might not have 100% product market fit you might still be a little subscale or you might just be flat or you might be going down there's uh on twitter there's a guy Xavier Helgeson that has uh I forget what his other he, he has enduring ventures and then they have one other firm that's just turnarounds they actually find really good businesses but they're just financially strapped they raise too much vc money they overhired, they you know, ran these promotions, they, they have a ton of churn and the underlying business is great or the product is great, but they just built it the wrong way. And these guys come in, they basically chop the head off the, the dragon and fire pretty much everyone and restructure the whole business, recapitalize it, and not even in bankruptcy, just out of bankruptcy, because there are a lot of times where the, the board and the entrepreneur just aren't aligned. The entrepreneur, there's like three X liquidate or two X liquidation preferences. There's issues where it's like, I'm not going to make any money here. What am I doing? Like I could just go start another company tomorrow and, and that's it. And there's all these incentives that aren't aligned and people just want to get out of these businesses. So there's a lot of businesses like that are out there. The question is, can you get people to actually adjust their mindset? And I've seen that venture capitalists aren't very good at just like, they say they're in a write down off a of business, but they don't really mean that. But that is a whole other ball game where you're going to have to make really hard decisions, probably piss a lot of people off where in those high growth moments, you know, you're going to piss off some people because they're just not ready to do high growth. In this case, it's like, in our case, we stepped in. There was a lot of people who had been here for eight to 10 years in the company, very comfortable. They were underpaid at the time. We, we did raise a lot of people's salaries, but people got fired. Teammates had to get let, 
they, they were let go of because they just there, there wasn't a performance there. There wasn't a, a culture of growing. There wasn't a culture of hitting KPIs. There was no culture of KPIs. So the you got to know what game you're getting into, and then you have to be ready to play it and play. And if you're in the turnaround game, it's it's a hard game to play. Like you, there could be a whole host of reasons why the business wasn't working, and you're just going to be in the in the kitchen trying things out and seeing what works and what doesn't work, and why this worked, why it didn't. And I think you know some of my mistakes that we made uh, starting out. So we brought in a guy that we sort of saw him as the future CTO. He flaked very early. We didn't commit enough to him. He didn't commit enough to us. He flaked out early and we got into the situation where we just had like the technology team sort of floating in the air for a few months where we didn't have a leader there. And that was a big uh, mistake on my end because I'm, I'm not technical. I mean, I'm financial sales, things like that. Um, the other mistake we made was we didn't cut off the heads fast enough. A lot of times we thought there's so much knowledge here. These guys know this market. They talk about it so well. They're, they know it. But Sometimes it's better to have just a person that doesn't know what's going on here and that they have passion for it and they're they're ready to go than the people that have been there and they're just like, well, that didn't work in 2016. That didn't work in 2018. It's like, no, we gotta we gotta be experimenting. So I think you just gotta be ready to move quickly in these situations and make really tough decisions to yeah. to turn things around. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And going through this again. You mentioned like you didn't cut the head off the dragon quick enough. You didn't let people go fast enough. You obviously, you're taking over this industry. You didn't necessarily know anything. You said that these people did have that knowledge. Do you have any type of insight into how you can establish the KPIs to be able to determine who knows, who doesn't know who's valuable, who's not valuable, like basically as quick as possible? Or, or do you feel like it's it's best to trim most of the team right away, essentially, and start fresh and get those new ideas in uh, as, as quickly as possible? I'm, I'm- I think, so a lot of times in the level that we're at, like the, this level of business, there are <clears throat> people that are in positions where, you know, they might be the CMO or they might be the CTO, but really they're just like the, the lead uh, lead developer. And there's these like skill gaps that, you know, you're the CEO and you have to kind of fill these skill gaps in some way. And sometimes that's, hey, we've got some money right now. Let's actually bring in a real CMO and and do it this way. But a lot of times you don't have that money and you kind of have to figure out a way to fill um, those those skill gaps. And I think when you step into these situations, you can see pretty clearly like who's just not up to speed. Like we we had a few people that was kind of like, this is not this isn't going to cut it. It was very clear from day one. Uh, their salaries were very low too. I mean, it was just one of those things like, it was almost like having an intern. You're like, ah, I, I don't need this. There were other people that were more entrenched that it took us a while to put those KPIs in place to say, hey, here's where we need to get to. And you need to kind of come up with a plan. And we saw pretty quickly when the people couldn't come up with a plan or they were kind of like waiting for us to come up with a plan. And you're like, but like, what am I paying you for? Like, if you can't come up with the plan, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and write the plan for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, because of the kind of culture, there, there's two sort of structures of how uh, companies can be built. There's the pyramid where the the owner is sort of on top and dictates everything down. <clears throat> and then there's the other one where the owner, like the, the customer is on top and the information flows down to the owner. And unfortunately, we were in the situation where the owners basically just decided everything, managed everything, and everyone went to them for everything. We tried to flip it and a lot of people just couldn't 
handle that of saying like, hey, the customer is going to give us the feedback and I'm going to bring it to the to ownership and see what they say. And we couldn't get people to to follow that a lot of times. So we had to make quite a few changes. And we still are. I and mean, there's still a lot of changes that we keep making even a year into this and and we'll keep making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the, the company is constantly morphing and all of that. So yeah. know, new skills, new things are needed, you know, can people f- plug those or, you know, do you need additional skills too? So yeah. Interesting. I mean, that's the problem of every CEO of companies that I know that grow fast is there comes a point where the CMO from, you know, the 50 person company can't be the CEO of the 250 person company or the, you know, whatever the revenue or the employee level that you're at. And you have to make that tough choice of, you know, putting them into a different position or firing them. Usually it ends up as a, f- a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unfortunate because they say like, Everyone I know, they're like, I wish I could keep this person. I wish they could kind of check their ego and do this. But it oftentimes it's like they can't handle someone stepping above them when they've been dictating for for a while. So it's it's a difficult balance. And everyone I know says that's their hardest, sort of the hardest transition phases is the people. Like, when do I get rid of this person or where do I put them? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mentioned this w- right in the beginning uh, when we first started talking to This was really interesting. Another one of your tweets uh, just about how you went about raising money for uh, the HR uh, company. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you've got these sims that are floating around there. You you came across this opportunity, which didn't have a, a true sim put yeah. together. I'm curious your perspective. Had there been a true sim that was put together, would you have just passed that on to your investors and shown them that opportunity? Uh, or was it because you were in a situation where you had to move fast. It would have taken too long to remake another SIM, another OM, another pitch deck, presentation deck. And maybe that forced you to go that that route where you basically attracted money by having a conversation rather than having this, this handout, this thing that everybody spends hours, days, weeks, months yeah, putting this whole thing together. <laughs> and And like we said, originally like that whole thing is all bullshit anyway because it's all perspective like if everything goes well this is where we should be at you know it, it's all projections so yeah. curious to learn a little bit more about your thoughts on that whole thing i think it depends on the level you're at too i mean we were raising you know we weren't raising a massive amount of capital i think if you are raising 10 million plus i think the table stakes of what documentation and what presentation has to be done is, is a whole other level. Um, I think the level we were at raising million, two million, uh, you can get away with a little bit more loose. I took, so, I mean, these guys provided me basically with their sales presentation. What I did, I said, send me this in PowerPoint format. I edited it a little bit. So it was branded. So it like was, this is the brand that we're buying and kind of showed, here's what we're going to do. Here's our game plan. Uh, here's our roadmap. Here's where we can add value. You know, here's the returns that are possible here. You know, base case, upside case, you know, different multiples that could come out of it. So we adapted a little bit, but it was 10 pages. It was not an extensive mm-hmm. deck and didn't go into, you know, this is the market and all this market research that most of these, most of these Sims are filled with like 10, 15 pages of market research that, you know, I think it's great. I think it shows it to you, but I think you can find like, if you just Google you'll find sort of, is this growing? Is it not growing? You know, where's funding going? Okay, I get it. Is there tailwinds or headwinds? Um, So I think people need to be conscious of like what their level is. But at the same time, I think Loom videos go a long way. I think you send the deck, 
you send a loom video saying like, Hey, who am I? What's our plan? What are we doing in five minutes? People can really get a better idea of who's the sponsor of this. Who's going to be the, you know, the principal of this and what are they all about? Then here's 90 pages about the, the industry because what people overlook every single time. And I was telling you this before I got, I got a 92 page one today, zero mention of people. The, and this, I, I'm an, I, now I'm in HR, so I'm going to put on my HR hat. Uh, everyone in HR, when you talk to them, they're always like, people are the most important part of any business. They're the lifeblood of any business. And it's actually true. Like you can't do absolutely, you can, you can have a great market, great idea, fantastic. You, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes, but in the end, you need the people to execute on those things. Like the, you can get away with a lot of errors if your market's great and you're basically printing money. But you still need people and people are the most important part of any business. And it gets overlooked all the time from these people that are raising money. It's who's going to run this? What is the structure? What are your faults and how are you going to fill those faults? Like where are your blind spots that you're going to fill those with, with hires? And I see this all the time. People just don't focus on this. And it's honestly, it, it's because they've never run a company. And then once they run it, they're like, oh, I wish I had known all these people issues that I was going to be dealing with. And people on Twitter joke about this, like, yeah, your sim doesn't show, you know, the guy that showed up drunk uh, on Friday to, to work and that you had to fire. And that's that happens in software companies. It happens in dumpster companies. It happens in Fortune 500 companies. There's people are the, the driver and people yeah. overlook that when they're sitting in, you know, building out their pitch deck. I couldn't agree more. You're looking at all of these other sims now. People might even be the most important thing that that you're looking at, right? Like who's the team, who's the drivers, what what is their background, their history? Would you agree that's probably one of the most important things that you're looking at? Absolutely. I, I look at, there's actually like two weird things I do now that I wouldn't have done whatever, three years ago. I look at Glassdoor. I look and see, hopefully the company's sort of big enough that you can get Glassdoor information. How have these people been treated? You know, you can get an idea of like middle management or kind of people that have been there. And then customer reviews. What do the customers say? Customer service reviews are the best ways to see like, what is the culture of this company? Like, do they care about the customers? Because usually companies that care about the customers also care about the employees. Like it's, it's usually a two-way street, at least from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. So I look at those two things and that's one of the key due diligence things I look at. When you see companies like customer service never answers, these guys are the worst, this product sucks. You know that there's just uh, problems internally that you're going to have to work on. Which is fine if the if it's priced in, I'm I'm happy to take on a lot of priced in issues, but if it's not, those can be pretty big red flags that something's not right. But I think another key thing, and and you know we weren't able to do this in this acquisition was if you can talk to team members, um, that's a really interesting piece of of due diligence because the the owners of the sellers are going to tell you one thing, but you want to know who's going to be operating this, who you're working with, and you know a lot of sellers are hesitant to do this because then the employees know that the company's for sale, there, there's something going on. I think it's always better that the, the employees know ahead of time, like, hey, we're kind of in this process, we're looking at this, we're thinking about this. It can be distracting, uh, especially if people have shares um, in the company, it can become a distraction. I know people have had issues with this, but I think it's a key part. And then they'd let you talk to at least the management or the people you're going to be dealing with directly. So you can kind of learn what's the culture, how's it, what's working, what's not, what, what can we improve? Because a huge way, a huge win you can make is on day one, taking something that people didn't like about the company and improving that. And 
efficiency, happiness goes through the roof because you just listened to them about one thing that was that, that was bothering them and you fixed it in one day. And they're like, wow, look at this guy, fix this. So as everyone knows, I have a thing for evaluating businesses. So this was a fun, fun episode for me. Uh, some of the things that we learned about on this, uh, on this episode is uh, we learned what SIMs and search funds were. So that was interesting. If you've never been in the world of trying to evaluate a business, these might be terms that you might not necessarily be uh, aware of. Uh, we learned some of Andrew's criteria for finding the right businesses. Uh, we learned how the, the ability to be able to use debt as leverage and analyze the revenue over a million dollars and um, how to pitch investors in a very, very easy, simple way. Um, we learned how Andrew even chose the HR industry, which was really insightful, really uh, interesting to be able to determine this is the right type of industry and just that mindset that you go through on how to be able to qualify that. It was really interesting being able to hear Andrew's take uh, on that. And all of that goes into all of the market research uh, and how to, to do all of that uh, market research to be able to, again, qualify that opportunity. So there's a lot of people out there that are looking to invest in companies, looking to acquire companies right now. This is all information that you should be doing and you should know before you make that investment or before you make that purchase into that particular company. Um, we learned how Andrew cuts above the uh, clutter, cuts through all the clutter that's out there, right? A lot of uh, opportunities are floating out there and a lot of people looking for money, a lot of people looking to sell their businesses, how to cut through all of that quickly so that you can hone in on the right types of opportunity. Uh, we learned what Andrew's secret sauce was, um, you know, that, that moment when uh, he, he stumbled across his HR company, Lantera, uh, and, you know, just how he saw that and how it stood out to him uh, amongst all of the other things that uh, that he was looking at. Uh, we learned some of the things that he did wrong, some of the missteps that, that he did and things that he would do differently moving forward, especially when it came to uh, looking at the funding uh, of the company, taking on debt versus uh, taking on an equity partner and how someone who has gone through this process is looking at that a little bit differently. Uh, and this is also a a time in the market right now. I know that I've always heard that it's best to take on debt rather than giving away equity. But today, because of how expensive money is, it might be better today. And, and Andrew felt that it was the case that it's better to take on uh, an equity partner today rather than looking for that debt partner. So again, really, really interesting, uh, someone who is actually doing this in today's market. We also got into some of the tips and techniques that Andrew uses today to be able to evaluate companies and be able to sort of see inside of that company without actually being there. He'll, he'll go and look at Glassdoor, learn how the employees feel about working at that company. What is the management like? What is the culture like there? Uh, and then same thing on the reviews section. If you go in and look at the reviews of a company, you can tell a lot about the way that that particular company or asset is being run and how your customers are responding to how that company is being run. So really, really insightful, valuable information there. 
this allows you to be able to dive deep into doing your due diligence. So really, really, really impactful, powerful episode today. If you are looking to connect with Andrew, you can find him on Twitter. He's Swiler A is his Twitter handle. Uh, on LinkedIn, he is Andrew Swiler, which is S-W-I-L-E-R. And of course, you can also check them out on their website, which is Lantero at L-A-N-T-E-R-I-A dot com. And don't forget, if you are a business owner looking to grow your net worth, through investing in real assets, go ahead and head over to investinsquarefeet.com and sign up for our newsletter because we're going to be revealing that and so, so much more right there in that newsletter.